Praise the Lord for that victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Well, I would like to give thanks to each and every one of you tonight. Um, my wife and I have greatly enjoyed our time here. It has been a real blessing. Uh, like I told a few of you brothers, I never even heard of this group before I came. I thought I was going to to a Bible school that was sponsored by a total different group. And I said, I think I know one or two of the brothers there. And I came and didn't know anyone. But you know, this has been a real, uh, both an eye-opener and also an encouragement to my wife and I. May God bless you. That's all I can say. Uh, I've been really inspired. And you know, uh, when, when you get... When you get a little up there, a little older in years, I don't consider myself an old man. But when you get up there a little more in years, you, you start to appreciate young people that have a zeal for God. Because you know that your time on earth is limited and the next generation is going to be the ones that take on. And the more faithful I see the next generation, the more I'm excited about what's going to happen to the church after I'm gone. After all, I've got children and grandchildren still here. <coughs> so I want to thank each one of you. My wife and I will be leaving tonight after the message. And uh, I just uh, pray that your, the rest of your time here will be a time of encouragement. A time of drawing nigh to God. And He will draw nigh to you. So, may God bless you richly. I'd like to invite you to come and visit us. We are about as far from here as what you had to get here. Those of you who sponsored this. And, uh, you know, I, I told a brother tonight, I said, out here in the West, uh, you know, when people, when I go back east and people find out, you know, they talk about living in, and I talk about living in Montana and and then they, uh, they talk about, oh yeah, there's such and such living in Montana, having met him. And they don't realize there might be five, six hundred miles separating us. <laughs> you know, and when I, when I come home, and I, I tell people when I come home from the east and I hit Montana, I still have as far to my home as what I used to have when I lived in New York and went down to my wife's brothers in North Carolina. <laughs> so there's lots of miles between us, but you know, it's only miles. We of the West here have learned to do a lot of driving. And I think it's a shame. It's a shame if we allow miles to separate good fellowship. I told a brother this evening, I said, I, I'm not finished with you people here. I, I want to see more of you. I got excited when I saw the faith shine among you. Because it's so far and in between, especially out here. And I think, I really think personally, that we of the West here, we ought to rally together and turn this world upside down out here. <laughs> and it's possible through Jesus Christ. Let's pray for one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's not allow denominational lines to get between us. You know, I've often wondered how this will be. And I believe it's, only, it's not a matter of whether it will be. I think it's matter, a matter of when it will be. That a lot of us, maybe not me, I don't know. 
But a lot of us as Christians, maybe my children, grandchildren, are going to end up in prison for their faith. And you know, when two brothers get together and they are in, in two prison cells, and they, and, and they were always apart and never even looked at one another and always had elbow problems when they wanted to shake hands with one another. You know, when they're in prison with each other, when they're in prison with one another, those denominational lines will come crashing down. So God bless you. I, uh, I need to move on tonight. Praise the Lord. I'm, glad, I'm so glad I came. But when I think... When I look at a group of youth like this tonight, you know, my thoughts go to one word. Potential. Potential. There's such potential in young souls that walk in truth and righteousness. You know, when the mind is young, when they're full of energy, there's no limit what God can do with young souls that set their hearts to obey Him. There's no limit. Their energy is boundless. They have a young, uncluttered mind that's not filled up with all kinds of trash as the years accumulated. And I I think of potential. And you know, I'd like to say this. The potential is there either for good or bad. And I believe those of us who are sitting here this evening that are leaders called to be shepherds of the flock, I believe that it is our responsibility to inspire the next generation to pursue godliness and holiness to inspire them to seek out godly wisdom it's up to us leaders to present the truth in such a way that the next generation is moved to launch out into the deep things of God and to not trust have any put any confidence in the flesh And most of all, I believe it's a great necessity today among us as churches that we teach that holiness is attainable. You know, there can be, we need convicting messages, but we also need messages to victory. Most of us know that we need to go from point A to point B, but there's not a lot of teaching out there to tell you how to get from point A to point B. And, and I, think, I think we need a lot of messages on victory. And, and you know, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And if you think that victory is not attainable, you won't attain it. You will not rise up above your expectations. If your expectations are high, if you believe that you are saved by the blood of Christ, and that you are made righteous by the sinless Christ, you will live a righteous life. If you believe that you're just a sinner saved by grace, you'll live like a sinner saved by grace. And if you believe that you're a saint, that you were once a sinner saved by grace, and now you're a saint, you will live like a saint. You will not rise up above your expectations. Well, God be praised. I need to move on. Let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 12 through verse 19. And then we're going to read verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. For we are made partakers with, of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Let us therefore fear, 
lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. I'd like to point you to one little word in the scripture I read in, in verse uh, 14. Maybe you never saw that before. I saw it tonight for the first time. And in the back of my Bible, I wrote down, In Christ. And then I put under what it means to be in Christ. Let's go back to that verse 14. For we are made partakers of. For many years, I know this scripture by heart. Not until tonight did I see that word of. I always quote it, for we are made partakers with Christ. There's a big difference. Made partakers of Christ. Or partakers with Christ. You see, if I look at it, partakers with Christ, then there's a separation between me and Christ. But when I make, when I look at that word of, then I'm partakers of Christ. I am in Christ. I just want to, this is not my message, but I I can't let you go tonight in this. I got to show you just four verses that I have accumulated over the last months or so that I wrote down. I want to just point some word out for you, words out tonight in those verses that you probably overlooked like I did for years. But I want you to look at those little words and then I'll let that go for tonight and you can meditate on in the days to come. Paul's own testimony, Galatians 2.20 I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which had I live, I live by the faith of. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 3 verse 12 Talking about Christ, in whom, we have, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Not faith in Him, by the faith of Jesus Christ. John 15 verse 11, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy, my joy might, be, might remain in you. Not that you might have joy in me, that my joy... Jesus Christ's own personal joy might remain in you. See how this is put in? We are in Christ. If I want to talk about something being put in Christ, if I put something, say I have a jar here, a quart jar with a lid. If I put something in that jar and close the lid, I can throw that jar out in the midst of the ocean or out in a big body of water and it will bob around and bob around. And everywhere that jar goes, whatever's in it will go with it. Do you realize that wherever Jesus Christ is, you are in Him? Figuratively speaking, we are in Christ, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Now. And when Christ shall come in His glory, Colossians says, he will, we shall come with Him. Hebrews 3 verse 14, what I just read. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Well, tonight I would like to focus on a character in the Bible for all of us to get some lessons out of but especially the youth tonight we all need it but we want to focus on a certain character in the Bible the character we want to look at is Joseph a most remarkable young lad you know if I would ask every one of you to make a study of Joseph's life until next week about this time and then we would come together and I would ask you I want you to tell me what you noticed especially about that young lad it would be very interesting what you would have picked up 
And I'm sure that it thinks we would vary in what we noticed and what we come up with. But I believe we would all agree with one thing. We would all come to the same conclusion relating to one certain area in this young boy's life. Joseph, as young as he was, as young as he was stood firmly on truth. He would not compromise. Joseph would not compromise. He knew where he stood and he knew why he stood where he stood and no amount of pressure from peers or enemies could change his mind. I titled the message this evening, No Compromise. The word compromise means an adjustment of conflicting claims and principles. It means to bring to terms. Now when it comes to truth and its established absolutes, there are no adjustments to be made. And I very much appreciated what we heard this morning concerning truth. When it comes to truth, there can be no adjustments. Truth is truth and it will always be that. We need to get this straight. Man's obedience will not make truth any stronger. Nor will his disobedience make truth any weaker. It doesn't matter how you and I relate to truth, we cannot change truth. It will remain. It stands on its own two feet. And it will remain. Whether you support it or whether you don't support it, makes no difference. It stands where it stands and nothing can change it. Our conduct will not add to it, nor will it take away from it. So we need to keep this clear. Truth never adjusts to anyone or anything. If there's any adjustment needed, it's always one way. Man adjusts to truth. Why? Because God is truth. Romans 3 verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. Truth and lies, they don't mix. They're like oil and water. You can't mix oil and water. If they would, if, if, truth, if, uh, if truth could mix with lies, then you could dilute truth. And if you could dilute truth, then you could dilute God. Because God is truth. Sometimes we talk about the deceptiveness of mixing truth with lies. And, it, and this is done by many preachers in our day. And yet it's not really mixing, it's not really mixing the two together. We just hear them put together and our mind is what does the mixing. Because you can't mix truth and lies. You can take an ocean of lies and try to mix it with one drop of truth. And you cannot dilute it. You cannot dissolve that truth. One drop of truth in an ocean of lies and you cannot dissolve that drop of truth. It will stand right where it's at. It will remain as strong as it ever was no matter how many lies surround that truth. You can't make it weaker or dilute it into anything less than what it always was. Lies never can make truth any weaker. Compromise also means to bring to terms. To bring to terms. Again, there are no terms for truth to come to. There cannot be any negotiations done between darkness and light. They don't mix. There can be no agreement whatsoever made where each one gives in a little bit. No, it won't, it won't happen. Compromising, get this straight, compromising on biblical principles means adjusting our words and actions to the terms the devil has suggested 
to avoid conflicting issues on the matter of truth. <clears throat> Joseph knew this. In his young years already he knew this. And as we look at his life, as we look his life over, we find no place where he compromised. You'll find in chapter 37 verse 1 that regardless what the consequences might mean, he stood firm and told his dad all about his brothers and, and the evil deeds that they did. And in chapter 39 you find the same thing when severely tempted. He would not compromise. Though it cost him years in prison. Matter of fact, you see this steadfast attitude throughout his entire life. Whether he was in prison or whether he had the position of a ruler in Egypt. Didn't make any difference. He would not compromise. That's why he prospered everywhere that he went. He would not sacrifice truth for fleeting pleasures or gain. He counted the cost. He counted the cost of disobedience to his God much higher than the cost of no compromise. We could go on and talk about Joseph and how he related to his circumstances in life. But my intent tonight, my intent for this message tonight is to pick up an example and to make applications. We need to relate to our circumstances in our day. We need to bring home this thing of no compromise for something that fits my life in my day in 2010. <clears throat> no compromise. How are you and I? How are we relating to this subject on a personal level? What is going on in our individual private lives? And I say private lives because... So many times compromise is so, the temptation to compromise is so much stronger because you and I can compromise behind the closed doors of our mind where no one can see what's going on. And that makes the temptation always more severe. <clears throat> One thing I want to make clear. Well, first of all, let's look at this. What, what are we talking about when we're talking about no compromising? Not compromising. Well, let's make one thing clear. Not compromising means steadfastness. Not compromising means steadfastness and must not be confused with stubbornness. There's a difference. There's a difference between the two and I think it's important that you and I know tonight what that difference is. Let's compare the two. Steadfastness is not a kin, it's no relative to stubbornness, though the two may look alike at times. Steadfastness means standing firm on biblical truth. It means standing on this biblical truth. Stubbornness is an unwillingness to budge from personal opinion. Stubbornness has its roots in what I think. Steadfastness is rooted in what God thinks. Steadfastness is based on conviction. Whereas stubbornness is based on preference. Both result in no compromise. But God's blessing is only on one. <clears throat> you know, we have the account in Acts where the Holy Spirit said, separate, un uh, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul. Well, if we study the characters of both of them men a little bit, we find that they were so vastly different from one another. You know, Paul, he stood for truth. No compromise. Barnabas, his very name gives him away. Barnabas was a man of love. Consolation. Son of consolation. He was a man 
of grace. And I, I see that in the churches today, over and over. We have it at home in our church. We have men that will stand on truth, no compromise. We have men that, come on, you know, uh, let's have some grace here. You know, we need them both. The Holy Spirit knew what He was doing when He said, Separate me unto me, Barnabas and Saul. You know, in the new, in the new dispensation of the church age, the church is to portray a portrait of Jesus Christ. And these two men were sent out to do missionary work. And the Holy Spirit says, I want this man, and I want this man. This man stands for truth. This man has love. He is a man of consolation. Let's put them together. You know, if they would... You know, Paul says, when he came to John, Paul says, I won't have him go along. He deserted us the other time. No way am I taking that man along again. Barnabas says, give him another chance. But you know, the dissension got so great that they separated. That was not the Holy Spirit's intent. The Holy Spirit wanted those two men to work together and give up to one another and blend together to portray Jesus Christ. And what is Jesus Christ? Full of grace and truth. Now, the problem is, a lot of men that stand for truth and are relating to a brother that is full of grace, as soon as they think of adjusting to one another, and a lot of the church of Jesus Christ looks at it that way, they tend to think that the only way that grace and truth can adjust to one another is by compromising. No, that's not necessary. Well, how, say we have, say we have truth up here. Say we have uh, Pauls in our churches that stand for truth up here. And we have brothers that have, have grace and they stand here. And, and the, first, the first thing we think of is this. Adjusting to one another. You don't need to compromise. You have truth that cannot be dissolved. Truth that cannot be uh, diluted. So you have truth here, and the way for those two to work together is to have grace come up to the level of truth and work together. You don't compromise, you don't dilute truth, or bring it down to a lower level, so so it's even with grace. You bring grace up to the level of truth. The Bible says, mercy and truth have kissed each other. That means, accepted one another. It doesn't mean compromise with one another. No compromise. What does it mean? It means going on faithfully until death. Steadfastly, plodding on, unwaveringly, walking in obedience. The older I get, the more precious there is, it is for me to, to see hoary heads among God's children. It is. The more, the older I get, I love to see old people in the church of Jesus Christ that are fired up for the Lord. Oh, it does something to me. It seems when one gets older, there's such a tendency to get slack, to lay down the armor, and just just get weary. <clears throat> the older we get, the more we should continue to read Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews. What does it mean for no compromise? It means standing steadfast for biblical truth regardless of the consequences. It means being a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Standing when all others bow to the king's image. It means standing firm even if a fiery furnace awaits us. It means praying as before even if there are hungry lions waiting in the den. 
It means losing your head because you're openly declaring that Herod is living in adultery. It means being stoned, sawn asunder, slain with the sword. It means wandering in mountains and in dens and caves. It means being destitute, afflicted, tormented. It means being tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. That's what no compromise means. That's what it meant to biblical characters. What does it mean to us tonight? Let's look more closely at this subject tonight and make some applications for our day. Let's look at some areas and see how we are faring in this. No compromise means labeling sin for what it is. Labeling sin for what it is. You know, today no longer, sin today no longer is identified by its true name. Sin likes to disguise it with some fancy modern term names so that we don't, we're not convicted as much. Stealing is having long fingers. Fornication is considered having a live-in. Adultery is having an affair. Perversion is called an, an alternative lifestyle. Killing unborn children is called a choice. Profanity and pornography is labeled freedom of expression. Before any of you think that you're not involved in this kind of compromise, let's bring it a little closer home. Covetousness is considered being a good steward. Discouragement is called the blues. Gossip is just a prayer request. A lie just having fun. I'm amazed how much God's people are caught up in this. There's no such thing like a white lie. They're all black. It doesn't come from the truth. Our Savior. It doesn't come from God. If it doesn't come from God, where does it come from? <clears throat> Let's remember the way you and I label sin makes a big difference in how we will deal with it. The Bible speaks woe to all those that call evil good. No compromise means being faithful in little things. Just little things. Standing firm behind the scenes where no one sees. It means carrying out minor details with as much faithfulness as big issues. It means that the promise to your children is as dependable as the promise you make to God. It means standing and fighting for little so-called insignificant things as well as big issues. Let me illustrate this. There's an interesting story, an interesting scripture in 2 Samuel Verse uh, chapter 23, this is the chapter that goes into detail concerning David's men, describing some of David's men. In verse 8, it talks about a mighty warrior named Adino, who slew 800 men single-handed. Next, it speaks of one called Eliezer, who smote the Philistines until his hand claved to his sword. Then in verse 11, the account is given of a great man named Shema. And by the way, that was David's own blood brother. A man by the name of Shema. It says the Philistines were gathered together in a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. Just a little piece of ground there full of lentils. And everybody, when the Philistines gathered together and they started fighting there in that ground, everybody fled but Shema. Every last one of the soldiers took off. They were scared. Shema stood his ground all alone on that ground of lentils. It says the Lord wrought a great victory because Shema stood his ground and defended that little ground of lentils. Now, at first glance, this account may seem to have 
not much of a lesson for us. I mean, what, what does this tale tell us? First, let's take note what lentils are. It's a type of beans. Here was a little patch of beans that Shema was willing to risk his life for. And he stood his ground and he fought and he fought the Philistines off when everyone else ran away. We use the term, such and such is not worth a hill of beans. It's not worth a hill of beans. Why bother? It's not worth a hill of beans. But this man, this man Shema, he was willing to fight for a hill of beans. And when everyone else fled and didn't think it was worth the while, he stood his ground. This man knew what no compromise meant. He knew how to be faithful in little. He wouldn't compromise, even if it meant that his life was at stake. He stood for what others didn't consider worth it. In verse 12 it says, The Lord wrought a great victory. What is that telling us? It says, The Lord wrought a great victory. It was the Lord's battle. It was the Lord's strength. It was He who won. By the, His power, the Philistines, the enemy, were, put to, were overcome. Listen, tonight, it's still that way. It's still the Lord's battle. The power and the strength is His. And the victory is His. It's not something that is too hard for Him to accomplish. His arm is not too short. But oh, He wants men. He wants women. He wants youth to stand for a hill of beans. That's what He wants. Not to compromise. He wants people that will not compromise. No matter how small the issue or how dangerous it appears. Dangerous that it may appear. You know, too often, we compromise and give in when we think it's just a small issue. Not worth our stand. Just the hill of beans. Not worth really standing for it. Listen, it's those little, those little hills of beans that make us or break us. It's those little things that make the difference. Those straying, uncontrolled, uncontrolled thoughts and desires. That hidden anger problem, that, I, that resentment I gave into. That juicy bit of gossip I compromised in. That bitterness that is not taken care of. That unkind word that I let slip the other day. That lust problem that no one knows all about. That apology that I owe. That shady deal that I pulled. Just the hill of beans I won't stand for. Compromise? Just the hill of beans. Think of David. It all started on the house roof with a thought. It just started with a thought. A suggestion in his mind up on the rooftop. Just the hill of beans he would not fight for. Not worth it. No one knows. And that is when the temptation to compromise is strongest. When no one knows. But a hill of beans usually doesn't just stay that. No. In David's case, it became adultery, and then it added up to murder. David paid a high price for the hill of beans that he would not stand for. And we heard a little bit about that today. You know, what happened to his family? Terrible things happened in his family. Because of the hill of beans, he would not stand for. Let me ask you all a question tonight. Every one of us, let's just ask ourselves a question. What would you give in exchange for your soul? What would you give? You know, that question is not hard to answer. 
Not at all. Don't think big. Think small. The answer is not all that hard. Whatever you are now giving. It's that simple. Whatever you are now giving. Whatever is defeating you. Whatever is keeping you from a life of complete victory. Whatever you are compromising for. That is the price that you have attached to your soul. No compromise means no fear of man. It means I do all things unto the Lord regardless of what other things. Let's look at this. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, The fear of man bringeth a snare. Many of us tonight are taken up with this. I know we are. Because it's so prone to happen to us as human beings. We get caught up in this thing of the fear of man. And we, and we compromise on issues. What is the fear of man? If it bringeth a snare, and if it's an area where many, uh, many Christians compromise in, we need to take a close look at this thing. What is the fear of man? In simple words, it's giving our attention, it's giving our loyalty, our affections, and our obedience to the creature rather than the creator. In simple words, that's really what it amounts to. It's seeking the approval of men above the approval of God. More concerned about what man thinks. More concerned about what my peers think than what God thinks. It's dethroning God and putting man in his place. Sometimes we use the term man fear quite lightly. But it's not a light matter. It becomes a serious matter when we look at the origin of it. It comes from the devil. And it's specifically designed to remove our God consciousness. One that compromises in this area becomes man conscious and status motivated. God is no longer the focus. But the approval of man becomes the person's focus. The Bible says it bringeth a snare. Another translation says it leadeth one into a snare. A snare. An unobserved trap. A hidden prison. It holds people captive. And if they're not set free by God's grace, it will completely control and consume them. Look at the strength that it had over the years in people's lives. It was responsible when King Saul spared King Agag, Agag and some of the cattle against God's command. When, Saul questioned him, when Samuel questioned Saul, he said he feared the people. He feared the people and he obeyed their voice. Think of Jonah and what happened when he compromised in this area. When Aaron made the golden calf. And, and did it, he did it because he feared the people. He feared that his reputation would dwindle among the people. When Peter failed to stand steadfast for what he knew was truth in Galatians 2 verse 12. And Paul openly rebuked him. It was again because of man fear. Who could sum up the total damage done by it? How many have recanted? How many have denied the faith down through the years in the Reformation? How many have recanted? No one knows. How many are today recanting? When the pressure is on. Are you free of this compromise? How much is it a part of our lives? Remember, it's, not, it's often not very bold. It's just sly. It's often not very bold. 
It can be a very strong problem in a quiet, shy person as well as a leader. It's just that subtle removal of God consciousness and replacing it with man consciousness. How many parents compromise because of pressure from their young people? Perhaps you think you're not affected by it. Let's consider some areas and see if we are as free as what we think we are tonight. How much pressure do you have in your life? How much pressure do you have in your life? Where does that pressure come from? Give it some thought. Does God pressure anyone? Think a little bit. Does the Holy Spirit by conviction pressure you? No. Never. The Holy Spirit does not pressure you. The pressure comes when you resist Him. We resist His work because of what people will think of us. How many young people have given in to that first cigarette, that first drink, that first drug offer, or even fornication out of wanting to be accepted by others? How much pressure, or how many, how could I say, how much of the latest fashions and fads are followed because of peer pressure? Young people want to belong. They want to be in. And they give in to things. Because of peer pressure. Peer pressure comes from man fear. Let me tell you. When you are, or let me ask you something. When you are tempted to give in to the pressures of fads and the latest, the latest fashions. When you're tempted with some of those things. And listen. I'm not talking about comparing yourselves with the fashions of this world. You know, every church and every religion seems to have their own fashions. You can have some Mennonite fashions. You can have, you can have German Baptist fashions. You can have Amish fashions. You can have all kinds of things. I'm not talking about the fashions in Paris. But let me ask you something. When you're tempted to give in to those things that you know are displeasing and you know they're not really acceptable, what is the motivating factor behind it? Are you being more God conscious or more man conscious? That's an easy answer. If we're honest, that's easy. Maybe you're thinking, I don't have a problem with those things. I can live above those things. No compromise. Well, bless God if you're not. If you don't have that problem. But what about other areas? Is it okay if others don't like you if you know that God approves of your life? Is that okay with you? Are you willing to be a fool for Jesus in the eyes of others? How important is your reputation to you tonight? Jesus said in John 5 verse 44, How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only. How can you believe? How can you believe while you are while you're forever looking for one another's approval? Another translation says, How can you have faith in God when your focus is on man and your every, every attempt is to be accepted and approved by men? The problem with having a notable reputation among men is the pressure that you're under. 
You get yourself into severe pressure. Pressure that you can't handle. You're pressured to live up to their expectations and their expected performance level. You know, the fear man becomes a snare and makes unreasonable demands that you feel you must live up to. It's hard and wearisome to live up to the expectation of others. First of all, you can't be yourself. You simply can't be yourself. Many, down through the years, many who once were among the unknown, rose up to great reputation. Who, you know, they climbed the ladder in the ranks of great reputation. Many that have reached those ladders, the top of those ladders, once again long to be small. They are under such severe pressure. They long to go back to the simplicity of just being a nobody. Where they were not under the pressure of performance according to the expectation of their peers. This is reality in more than out there in the world. This is reality in the church. This happens among God's people. How many great evangelists of the past must have been under severe performance pressure? Somehow people tend to put some of these great men of God above human level. And James has to remind us about Elisha, one of the greatest, who was subject to like passions like we. He says he's a man, he was a man just like we are. If you're trying to live up to human expectations because of your reputation, you are in bondage. You are in bondage. Besides, you will never make it. You're not going to make it. There's no power in that. And your faith will dwindle to nothing. You know what will happen? You know, answer an honest question to me tonight. Are you as concerned about your character as what you are your reputation? If you are not concerned more about your reputation than you are about your character, you are always free to be yourself. Nobody will ever take you by surprise. You can always be yourself no matter where you're at. Jesus said, how can you believe which seek honor one of another and seek not the honor which comes from God only? Do you have a problem with faith tonight? Do you think sometimes I have no faith? I just find it so hard to believe. I just find it so hard to trust the Lord. Are you at that place? Do you ever get to that place? Does God's promises, do they seem far away? Is your prayer life dry? And you're wondering sometimes secretly, you wouldn't tell anybody. But secretly you're wondering if this is all there is to the Christian life. Have you ever been there? Your Christian life is dull and boring. Check tonight where your focus is. What is your focus on? Is it man or is it God? Jesus asked the question, how can you believe? How can you have faith? How can you have a vibrant prayer life? How can you trust God when your focus is on man instead of God? When you're seeking the honor of man instead of the honor which cometh from God only? Unlike Christ, 
the yoke and burden that man puts on you is not easy and is not light. No, we put hard yokes on one another. And that's why Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor. Labor, what was he talking about? Laboring to be accepted? Laboring under peer pressure? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly at heart. And you shall find rest for your soul. Paul told the Corinthians that comparing ourselves amongst ourselves is not wise. Why? Why is it not wise? Just think what it gets us into. His business prospers better than mine. He makes a better speaker, a better teacher. She's a better housekeeper or cook. Her sewing is neater than mine and so forth. It can go on and on. What about our homes? What about our possessions? Does the fear of man have anything to do with it? Where does competition get its strength? Does it come from the fear of God or the fear of man? Does it come from fear of not being accepted by God or does it come from fear of not being accepted by man? How come we get so competitive? Why is it hard to be completely transparent and honest? How many lies has the fear of man been responsible for? How many exaggerations? We fear the lashing tongues of others more than what we fear God's disapproval. What about witnessing for Jesus? When God, sets us, uh, when God sets up a divine appointment, when He wants us to be His mouthpiece, this individual out there is coming out to the end of himself and he cries out and he, asks, and he cries out to the Lord and he wants peace and God wants to use one of His children and He sets up a divine appointment. And you meet Him at the gas pump. You meet Him at the grocery store. Or you meet Him when you're on a walk. Or maybe it's your neighbor. Whatever. God sets up a divine appointment. He wants you to be His mouthpiece. And you find the fear of man grips you. And you can't speak. Shall I for fear of feeble man the Spirit's course in me restrain? Or undismayed in deed and word be a true witness for my Lord? Awed by a mortal's frown shall I conceal the word of God most high? How then before thee shall I dare to stand on and how thy anger bear? Shall I to soothe the unholy throng, soften thy truth or smooth my tongue? To gain her skilled toys or flee, the cross endured my Lord by thee? What then is he whose scorn I dread, whose wrath or hate make me afraid? A man, an heir of death, a slave, to sin a bubble on the wave. That's the songs we sing in our books. <clears throat> The fear of man militates directly against Colossians 3, verse 24, 23 and 24. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, and not unto man, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of an inheritance, for, for ye serve the Lord God. You're not out serving man, you serve the Lord God. <coughs> Let's ask ourselves a question tonight. Which is the motivating factor in my life? The fear of God? Or the fear of man. The one is the beginning of wisdom. And the other bringeth a snare. After all. Let me tell you. The bottom line is this. Someday. You and I. Every last one of us. Are going to stand before Almighty God. And we're going to give an account of our life. 
Will those friends of yours, will those that brought peer pressure upon your life, will they be there to help you out of your situation? No. Will they be there to intercede for you? How does your life read concerning this subject? Can it be said of you like it's said of Joseph? No compromise. Let's look at another area. No compromise means I cannot be bought. I cannot be bought. Joseph could not be bought. No amount of reputation as the top trusted servant could convince him to compromise with Potiphar's wife. No amount. He chose prison. Joseph chose total disgrace rather than a price to compromise. He chose freedom of heart behind bars over freedom physically and spiritual bondage. Let's look at an Old Testament character named Balaam. Perhaps most of us know the story how he a prophet of God was willing to sell out for temporal personal gain. The story begins in Numbers 22. Balak, king of Moab, just watched his neighbors, the, Amor- Amor- uh, the, the Amorites, get killed and plundered by the armies of Israel. And the way I understand that, Balak was next in line pretty well. And he saw this army of God's people sweeping across the land, just cleaning house as they went. And Balak sat there and he knew. He had heard rumors because rumors run ahead of the armies of Israel. And they told him all about Bashan and all about the kings on the other side of the Jordan. And these rumors come around and they heard about Jericho. And they heard of what's going on here. And so Balak got scared. These people are like grasshoppers eating up the land, he said. And so he sends for Balaam. Who I have a hard time... Accepting it, but the Bible says it, so I accept it. But I have a hard time wondering where Balaam ever got to be a prophet of God. But he was a prophet of God, and uh, and so Balak knew this, and he sent Balak, king of Moab. He sent him. Uh, he he sent word over to Balaam for him to come over and curse the children of Israel. And we know we know how his messengers came to Balaam with the rewards of divination. It says to persuade Balaam to come. Balaam told the messengers that he's going to have to talk to God about this thing. And so he took it to God and he prayed. Well, God told him, no. Do not go with them. That's what God told him. Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Those are exact words the Bible says. Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. That's it. Don't go with them. You can't get it any clearer than that. Which part of no, Balaam, don't you understand? So Balaam said to Balak's leaders, Get back to your land, for the Lord refuses to give me leave to go with you. Quite a difference in that answer than what the Lord had told him. Now something about Balaam's answer to these messengers that smells like compromise. Instead of saying, the Lord refuses to let me go, he should have told him, listen, I can't curse these people of God because the Lord says they are blessed. That's what he should have told the messengers from Balak. 
Now what is the difference in these two answers? The one is obeying God on the outside, while the other is obeying God on the inside. The one is religion, the other is relationship. The one has the letter of obedience and the other has the spirit of obedience. And I believe Balak detected this. And so he tries again by sending more impressive messengers and promises greater honor if Balaam responds. Balaam's first answer appeared to be ba- to Balak. His first answer to Balak appeared like he would be open for temptation. So what does Balak do? He sends him a more tempting temptation. What should this teach us tonight? Isn't it clear that when God says no, we should immediately relax and surrender from the heart? Allowing the Holy Spirit to make God's answer a conviction in my heart? Isn't that what it should be? But many take the other route. God says no, but there's not a giving up, not a total surrender. They won't surrender to His will. And there's a slight feeling of resentment because God does not allow me to go. There is obedience, but there's no conviction behind the obedience. Obedience is only on the outside. God knows it. And do you know what? The devil knows it too. Just like Balak. The devil knows it too. When the devil perceives this, he knows there's a high possibility for compromise. So he does just like Balak did. He sends a more tempting temptation. If what God tells us tonight, if we don't make that a conviction of the heart, but obey only the letter of it, the devil smells compromise. And he is sure to try you in a deeper way. Who tonight doesn't know from experience that the longer that we reason around, the harder the temptation. The devil figures, here's one that can be bought. Now, things are harder to resist, the temptation is greater, and the situation is tougher. And you know what often happens? People in this predicament most always do exactly what Balaam did. Pray about it. Listen, it's wrong to pray about something that God has says no. It's wrong. You're asking for it. The psalmist says he sent them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. You're opening yourself up for deception because you receive not the love of the truth. It's dangerous. What is clear in the Bible we should never pray about unless we want to pray for grace to do it and carry it out. No compromise means no option. I'm not going to embarrass anybody tonight but I'm going to ask you married men a question and I want you to answer it honestly in your heart. Have you ever been severely tempted to get a divorce? I mean that, that never even entered my mind. Do you realize tonight, young people, do you realize that where there's no option, the devil has no power? The reason I was never even tempted, it never crossed my mind to get a divorce, was because when I got married, it wasn't an option. 
Divorce never was an option for my wife and I. Did we always agree? No. We had our differences. But we always worked out our differences. And I have a wonderful marriage. I would do it all over again with the same woman. But you know what? There is unlimited grace and strength when there is no option. And you and I can go all through our Christian life and make no option. Anything that God doesn't want us to do, if it becomes no option to us, the devil has no leverage. I was never even tempted to get a divorce. The only thing the devil can, the only power the devil has in any temptation in any of our lives is when he knows that it's not necessarily no option there. And he figures that you can be tempted. No compromise also means I cannot be bought. I cannot be bought. A poll was taken in America and they asked men and women how much money it would take for them to cheat their spouse and commit adultery. The average amount for men was $10. And the average for the woman was $10,000. But as the dollar amount got higher, almost everyone said that they would commit adultery and cheat on their spouse for a million dollars. Now there's a vast difference between $10 and $1 million. But only in dollars. That's all. Only in dollars. The only difference is the price. If a person is willing to set aside convictions for money, if a person can be bought with any price, then it doesn't matter to God how small or how big the price is. What matters to God is that whether you and I can be bought at all or not. The same goes for you and I in any temptation to compromise. It's not what all it takes to make us give up. It's whether or not that we will give up at all. What would it take for you to leave the Lord's will tonight? What's your price? At what point are you willing to disobey God? Are you for sale? Is God for sale in your life? Is obedience for sale? Or are you like Joseph with no sale A not-for-sale sign on your back. No compromise. Does the devil know that you will not compromise? Does the devil know that you cannot be bought? Or does he know that if he puts up the price high enough with a more tempting temptation that you'll compromise, that you can be brought to terms? I read an account here some time ago. Well, first of all, they say that among professing Christianity, if professing Christians are really brought under pressure, two-thirds of them will recant. I wonder who the two-thirds are here tonight, or if this church here tonight is two-thirds or not. Have you ever wondered whether you would stand fast if you were really, really brought to persecution? Have you ever wondered whether you would be able to stand? Do you know what? It's as easy to stand at gunpoint for your faith than it is to stand with the liberty you have. If not easier. 
Maybe you don't know if you would be able to stand or not. But I can tell you, it's not hard. If you're not standing now, you would not stand then. We have to realize that when we, become, when we get into a, into a crisis like that, what steps to the door when a crisis knocks is you. Not your reputation. Not your intent. You will go to the door when a crisis knocks. And you are your character. And your character is what you have become by the choices that you have been making. All the little choices of your mind are adding up to a sum total and that sum total is your character. And when crisis come knocking at your door, your character will answer the door. Not what you'd like to be, not what you think other people think you are. You and what you are and what you have been developing into over the past years will go to the door. I read an account here some time ago. This is a true account over in China where the authorities found out about a secret meeting of the Christians. And they, they went to the meeting at night when they were holding a secret meeting behind closed doors. And they bashed the door down and stepped inside when the little church was there having services. Armed men. They placed the Bible on the floor at the door. And they surround the house and they said they're going to light this house. Anybody that steps out the door and spits on this Bible can go free. Anybody that will not will be shot or burned. The pastor of the church walked up and spit on the Bible. I don't know how many others did, but a girl of 16 walked slowly up to the Bible. She knelt down, picked it up, took her skirt, wiped the spit off, and kissed it. <clears throat> Authorities were standing but that far away from her. She was instantly shot in the head and she died. What a triumphant end. No compromise. The temptation to compromise is often no, not so much in great boldness as in little subtle things, a little at a time. In little persistent ways to wear a person out. Where one gets weary of resisting. Remember Samson, Delilah. She wore him out until he drove him up a wall. This is often what happens with parents. You know, beware. Some of you have gone through some hard decisions in the past years. To stand for the truth. Some of you would not budge no matter what relatives said or other church people said or what whoever said. You stood. No compromise. Beware. I have seen it with my own eyes. 
Many parents that lost home and everything because of the stand they took for Christ were not able to stand up against their own teenagers when their teenagers wanted liberty. Compromise. I've often wondered if young people would realize what they're doing. If they would know that they are jeopardizing their own spiritual safety by their insistence, they would more readily yield to what their parents see. I have seen many young parents go through this thing so concerned about the welfare of their children's future and then lost their stand, like I said, when their children got older. Young people, consider yourself fortunate if you have parents who are concerned enough to make some spiritual guidelines for your safety. But so often it's so hard for young people to accept the fact that someday they will be as old-fashioned as they think their parents are today. Tonight, where are you in this matter of no compromise? Where are we at tonight? Are we compromising? Does the devil know that we are for sale? And he knows that if he makes the temptation tempting enough, eventually we can be brought to terms. Or does the devil know that I can't budge that person? He will not compromise. One way or the other, we are at one place or the other. Tonight I'm going to give opportunities again. I just want you to free yourself. Before I go home and drive four hours tonight, I want to be able to be free from the blood of all men. And I don't want to walk out of this house without giving you an opportunity to make things right before the Lord. So we're going to sing once again. We're going to sing two verses. If you want to just make it public and confess your sins to God. Let me tell you something. The more secret we are with the confessions that we make that should be made in public. Now, I want to make something clear. I thought of saying it today, but our time down there was very limited. But I want to just, I just want to say this for what it's worth. Sometimes we are so convicted about something in our life that we need to make confession. Confession is good, confession is right, confession is needful. But there are some confessions that I feel are not fit to be made in public. And I wish that some pastors would teach some of their people more of this. Because I've heard confessions in an open church setting like this that were not fit to be made. Confessions of personal impurity. Never confess in public. Confessions of impure thoughts. Never confess them in public. What do you think happens to the opposite gender in those services? What do you think they think? If it's a matter between you and God, you need to confess it to God. And if you can't find the victory, get some spiritual brother or sister that you have confidence in and get them and share it with them and get them to pray with you. Don't stand in public and make a confession that doesn't concern anybody else or is not fit to be confessed in front of others because of what it, where it will take their thoughts. But if it comes in matters of no compromise and you know you have failed, let me tell you something. It seems the more willing that we are, or the more willing we are to be vulnerable and the more open we are with our confessions, the more victory we find. 
the more secret we are, where we're too ashamed to really confess some of these things that should be confessed in public, the less victory we seem to have. So we're going to sing two verses of Just As I Am tonight again. And uh, I'll give you the opportunity to confess, to get to your feet and confess, to come up here and pray, to get someone for counsel, whatever you want to do. But we're not going to prolong the services long, but I want you to feel free to just make things right if there's anything the Lord has put His finger on tonight. Let's sing. Someone want to lead that song? I forget what page that was in. I did have it last night. Anybody have the page? The Lord invites us. He's so gracious, so kind. He wants us just where we're at. Let's sing the second verse. with God tonight do you know what be free tonight and go home and sleep sweeter than you've slept for a long time tonight is the night just to make that thing right we have Jesus openly inviting us and I love the invitation he gives us in Isaiah 18 he just says come come let us reason together it's like he's saying come come with these sins come with this thing of, of compromise Come, lay it out on the table before us. Pull up a chair and we will reason this sin issue out. Though they be like scarlet, they shall be like wool. Though they be like crimson, they shall be like snow. Inviting us. Is there anyone else tonight before we close the meeting? Do you want to come up and just simply make your confessions to the Lord? Now is your opportunity. We're going to close the meeting but I'd like to just say this. If there's anyone up here, any of you that have responded, if there's any here tonight that wants counsel, you want someone to help you through, please, please don't be afraid to seek for help. There's help available. There's counselors here that will help you through. Don't settle for anything less than total complete peace. If you want to stay on your knees and pray through until you feel that you have gotten through to God, God bless you. Do so. But if you want help, make it known. We're going to close the meeting and we're just going to ask the rest of us, let's just be subdued, stay quiet, so the people here that are conversing and talking to God can commune with Him. We can fellowship, but let's, let's do so with hushed tones.
Pardon? Should we finish with the song? Finish the song. Let's do that. Let's finish the song. If you're through with praying, you can go to your seat. If not, just go get through. Don't go until you're through. Go ahead. to be free before the Lord. Well, I'll turn the time over to the moderator if he has anything to say. God bless you all. We'll be leaving tonight. Don't forget where we live. We need each other. I don't know that you need us, but we need you.